Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, John. How are you? I'm good. This is exciting. Episode 311, one of the last two episodes of season three. Where has the time gone? Before you know it, it'll be season four. Hey, uh, speaking of, by the way, uh, do we know yet what book we'll be listening to in season four? You know, I don't know if I've mentioned that before, because these, as you know, these episodes are a month apart now, so I kind of forget what we did. They'll be two two weeks apart in season four, so we'll have a better idea. But we're going to be listening to the third book in the Eli Marks mystery series, The Miser's Dream. Oh, it's a good one. It, it's one of my favorites. And one of the reasons we did the self-working trick this year was, well, A, it had 12 stories, so it worked very nicely into a 12-month year uh, and allowed us to get some other things done this year. But also, there's an element in The Miser's Dream where I knew a guy was writing a book about a key element in that in that mystery. And I wanted to wait until he was done with the book. And he is done with the book. And we are going to chat with him. And it will be a big part of uh, the early part of season four will be that. And that's all I'll say about that. All right. You know what? If I were listening to this podcast, what I would do based on what you just said is hit that subscribe button right now so you don't miss it. Another thing you don't want to miss is this episode, which features one of our favorite past Yes, yeah, let me just, I'll just say, talk for myself. Certainly one of my favorite past guests. Yeah, this will come as no surprise to anyone who's read the title of the episode. But yeah, he's back and he's better than ever. David Williamson came back to chat with us and he's going to talk to us about magic conventions. Among other things. And my goodness, does he have some stories to tell? He does in typical David Williamson fashion. Uh, there are some fun tangents uh, and also some great memories from well, he's been going to magic conventions, I would guess, for 40, 50 years, 40 years, a long time, a long time. And one of the stories that he tells is a story that I heard years ago that became the basis for this episode's Eli Marks short story, The Vanishing Man Redux. Are you sure? Are we pronouncing that correctly? Actually, are you pronouncing that correctly? Because I haven't said it yet. Well, you said it when we recorded it, and I think you said it right then, and I just heard a podcast with Ileana Douglas, and she said Redux, so that's what I'm going with. It is The Vanishing Man Redux, and we'll listen to that, and then we will come back and hear some great stories about magic inventions and David Williamson, but right now, here's our story. The Vanishing Man Redux. In my experience, law enforcement folks aren't usually a good audience for magic. Why do you think that is? I was multitasking behind the bar, topping off Uncle Harry's ginger ale while also filling a new pitcher of beer. Because they can never really enjoy the trick until they figure out how it was done. I shrugged as I handed Harry his ginger ale. I guess, but you could say the same for many magicians. True enough, Harry agreed. He turned and looked across the room at the two disparate groups who made up the sum total of my customers on this dark and cloudy afternoon. Harry's table consisted of two of the gang of aging magicians collectively known as the Minneapolis Mystics. They'd been meeting here weekly in various combinations over the years, 
trading lies and embellishing exaggerations since I was a kid. I had literally learned magic at their feet. Today's assembly, which hardly qualified as a quorum, consisted only of Harry and his friend, mentalist Abe Ackerman. Two tables and a million miles away sat a handful of law enforcement folks who Harry had dubbed the Four Horsemen of Criminal Apprehension. I'm not sure why they had picked my bar as their meeting spot, beyond the fact that one of them, homicide detective Fred Hutton, was now married to my ex-wife. It wasn't because he and I were pals. History had demonstrated just the opposite. At best, you could say he tolerated my existence, and the feeling was mutual. And yet, he and his cronies had chosen this spot for their weekly get-togethers. And who was I to discourage them? They spoke quietly, drank moderately, and tipped to excess. So in my mind, they were welcome additions. I grabbed the full pitcher and a fresh bowl of filberts and headed over to their table, arriving just as one of them, Glenn Randolph, was wrapping up his story. So apparently, this idiot had cut just one corner each off four $20 bills. He then glued each of the pieces to the front of a $1 bill, and to be honest, it didn't look bad. He hands it to the clerk to pay for his pack of gum, and she gives him back change for a one. Our guy looks at it and says, hey, I'm short here. I gave you a 20. And she points to the bill in her hand and says, it's a one. And this genius says, no, no, you have to turn it over. The table responded with knowing laughter each of them probably thinking back to one or more incompetent criminals they'd nabbed over the years. Of course, nowadays, with credit cards and smartphones, that sort of scam has gone the way of the Pony Express, Randolph continued, finishing the remains of his beer as he reached for the new pitcher. Like my ex-wife's new husband, Randolph was a detective with the Minneapolis Police Department, working primarily in the Robbery and Financial Crimes Division. If he resembled an aging wrestler, it was probably because he was. He had ranked nationally while in college. Gravity and aging may have had their way with him, but he still occasionally displayed the grace of an athlete in his movements. He finished filling his glass and looked up at me. I suppose smartphones have done a number on magic as well, he said with a grin. I mean, when you've got a miracle machine in your hand, who needs card tricks, am I right? He turned to the others and received knowing laughs in return, with the exception of homicide detective Fred Hutton, who only offered up a dim smile. Magicians have proven to be pretty adept at quickly adapting to new technology, I said as I pulled my phone from my pocket. But you're right, who needs a deck of cards when you have a smartphone? I held mine up, revealing the image on the screen was of a deck of blue-backed playing cards. I looked over at Randolph think of a card. He glanced around the table, not sure how he should be reacting to this impromptu performance. He stuttered, but before he could answer, he was beaten to the punch. Three of diamonds. This came from Carol Hollinger, who ran the Minneapolis Police Department's forensics lab. She was probably the smartest one of the quartet and certainly the nicest. Although she dressed like a middle-aged librarian, she had a quick wit and an impressive lexicon of profanity when the situation warranted it. Three of diamonds. Funny, 
I was thinking of that very same card, I said, as I held the phone out for them. I passed my hand briefly over the device. They looked down to see the image on the screen was now the three of diamonds, face up, on the deck. This produced a delighted giggle from Carol and a grunt of disbelief from Randolph. It's voice activated, he said with a sneer. Siri heard Carol or you say the name of the card. Or maybe it's using the gyroscopic technology in the phone, offered Mark Kelly, the fourth member of the group. He wasn't strictly in law enforcement, but considered himself law enforcement adjacent. He was a former cop who was now an investigator for a top insurance company. You know, you tilt the phone this way or that to make a certain card appear. But I don't know. Why don't you check out the card for yourself, I suggested. In a quick motion, I pulled a real card off the phone and handed it to him, flipping it over so they could all see both sides before he took it for a closer examination. In fact, if you want, I continued, feel free to examine the entire deck. With that, I pushed my thumb against the object in my hands, revealing that it was now a complete deck of cards. I did a quick spread of the cards, showing that not only were they real cards, but also all different, before letting them fall in a cascade to the tabletop. This produced a yelp of laughter from Carol Hollinger, while a mystified Mark Kelly continued to examine the three of diamonds I'd handed him. He held it like it was some sort of alien object, slowly turning it over, scrutinizing both sides. Seeing they already had two full bowls of filberts, I picked up their empty pitcher and stopped at Harry's table to leave the extra bowl on my way back to the bar. I would imagine, Harry said as he turned to the neighboring group, that new technology has forced even your stupidest criminals to get a little bit smarter. You know, with DNA and cell phone towers and triangulating locations and Latent fingerprints and forensic carbon-14 dating, criminals must have to work a lot harder nowadays. Harry, are you just listing words you've heard on CSI Miami? Carol Hollinger said with a laugh. Perhaps, Harry admitted. But as your technology improves, don't your criminals have to get smarter as well? You'll be relieved to know that today's criminals are just as stupid as they've always been, she continued as she glanced around her table for confirmation. And from my experience, the smarter they think they are, the easier they are to catch. The same is true in the magic world, offered A. Backerman as he daintily picked out the largest filberts in the new bowl. The smartest audience members are usually the easiest to fool because they always think they're two steps ahead of you. When they're often four steps behind, Harry agreed. That's not to say we still don't run into an occasional situation which simply baffles us, Carol said, like the Dresher Diamond case. Randolph and Kelly nodded and grunted in agreement, shaking their heads at the memory. Sounds intriguing, Harry said as he leaned forward in his chair. The Dresher Diamond case, you say? Details, please. The small group exchanged looks, not immediately warming to this idea. It was in all the papers, Carol finally said with a shrug. I suppose it was, Glenn Randolph agreed. He turned to Harry and Abe. 
Cal Drescher's hotel room was broken into and his wife's diamond necklace, valued at $250,000, Carol added. Yes, Randolph continued, her valuable necklace was stolen. Harry looked at him expectantly. Surely there was more to it than that. The necklace vanished from their hotel room. There was no way in, no way out. But while the couple was at dinner, someone, somehow, got in and took it. Assuming it was stolen at all, Mark Kelly added quickly. The insurance company questioned the validity of the claim? Harry asked. In the strongest possible terms, Kelly said. There was no proof the necklace was stolen. The room was ransacked, Carol offered. The couple could have easily done that before they left, Kelly shot back. Personally, I wouldn't put it past them. A shady pair, both of them. Upstanding citizens, Carol countered. Yes, the worst kind, Kelly said as he reached for a refill. Here's what went down, Randolph said, settling back in his chair as he began to recount the story. Cal and Denise Drescher were staying overnight at a ritzy hotel in downtown Minneapolis. You know, that high-end one down by Loring Park. They were in town for the night to attend a charity event in the hotel's ballroom. They checked in about 3 o'clock, and according to everyone at the front desk, they were bickering from the moment they arrived. She was ticked off about his driving. He was mad she had brought three suitcases for a one-night stay. They went on and on. There were two clerks on duty at the time, a longtime employee named Josh White and a new trainee named Nicole Swanson. The manager, Steve Harrington, and the concierge, Maria Lopez, were also within earshot and heard the entire conversation. Their individual testimony is remarkably consistent, Kelly agreed. It must have been pretty memorable for all four to distinctly remember it, Harry commented. Well, when she took out the honkin' big diamond necklace, they really sat up and took notice, Randolph said. Denise pulled this huge hunk of jewelry out of her purse, saying she thought they should put it in the hotel safe for the night. Cal Drescher countered he thought she had brought it along to wear it. If not, why bring it? She said she still hadn't decided what she was wearing. Back and forth they went. She ends up putting it back into her purse, and off they go to the elevators. So, at that point, the witnesses have established the necklace was on her person, Mark Kelly added. He was still twirling the three of diamonds between his fingers. Not only the witnesses, but the CCTV footage from the lobby as well, Randolph continued. CCTV also shows them getting off the elevator on the 16th floor and heading down the hall to their room. Two hours later, we've got footage of them exiting their room dressed for the fancy charity event downstairs, dressed to the nines, except she's not wearing the necklace. So she decided against wearing it? Abe Ackerman asked. He appeared to have succeeded in picking the largest filberts from the bowl. According to the Drashers, there was an argument about her wardrobe, Randolph explained. In his statement, Cal Drescher said he gave the incorrect response when his wife asked if her first choice of outfit made her look fat. There's only one right answer to that question, Harry said with a chuckle. Yeah, well, Cal picked the wrong one, which resulted in Denise abandoning that outfit for another one, 
And this one, she said, wasn't a good match for the diamond necklace, so she left it in the room, hiding it inside a toiletry bag buried in one of her three suitcases. But certainly there was an in-room safe of some kind, Harry said. Indeed there was, Randolph agreed. However, according to the couple, there had been an incident in the past when Cal Drescher employed an in-room safe and then forgot the combination he'd made up. From that point on, Denise had put a ban on their use. Once bitten, as it were, Abe mumbled to no one in particular. So they head down to the party, and the video footage in the hallway shows her not wearing the diamond necklace. Abe gave me a wave and pointed to his drink and the half-full filbert bowl. I had been sitting on a stool at the bar, but jumped down to handle his request while Randolph continued the story. Exactly, he said. And the video footage also shows that no one went in or out of that room until the dressers got back about four hours later. And I should point out, we've checked the metadata on the footage and there was no monkey business, Carol Hollinger added. The movements of guests and staff up and down that hall corresponded perfectly with footage from the elevators and stairwells. In short, no one tampered with the CCTV footage. And no one went into their room, Randolph continued. That's documented by the footage and confirmed by the electronic lock on the door. According to the log, the lock was unlocked with their key card when they arrived at 3.23 p.m. and then unlocked again with the same card at 11.41 p.m. When did they report the diamond necklace had gone missing? I asked. I had returned with Abe's drink and a fresh bowl of filberts. Five minutes later, Randolph said. They took one look at their ransacked room, determined the necklace was gone, and called 911. And there's no adjoining room or balcony? I asked as I pulled up a chair at Harry's table. Randolph shook his head. No adjoining room, no connecting doors, no balcony. They were 16 stories up, and the windows don't open. The only way in was through that one door. And yet someone got in, ransacked the room, and took the diamond necklace, I said. Or they staged it, Mark Kelly offered. Classic insurance scam. I've seen it a million times. Randolph shook his head slowly. Maybe, he said. I've interviewed my share of liars, and I wasn't getting that vibe from this couple. And I don't know. The room really felt like someone had gone through it searching for something. Intuition, Harry offered. Randolph shrugged. After a while, you get a sense for these things. Harry turned to Carol Hollinger. And forensics agreed? For the most part, she said. Whoever it was, they did a real number on the room. All the drawers had been gone through. Even the medicine cabinet was in a shambles, although there was nothing in it large enough to hold the necklace. And for some reason, they'd squeezed all the toothpaste out of the tube. Excuse me? Harry said as he leaned forward. Yes, the contents of a tube of toothpaste had been squirted on the sink and the adjacent counter. I can't imagine they were looking for the necklace inside of it, though. Harry considered this for a long moment and then turned to Mark Kelly. And from an insurance perspective, you think the whole thing was staged? 
What am I supposed to think? Kelly said. The proof is in the CCTV footage and the log for the electronic lock. No one went in or out of that room while the dressers were gone. A clear case of fraud, if you ask me. Harry looked over at Abe. Doesn't this remind you of the vanishing man? Abe nodded. That's the first thing I thought of, he said. Virtually the same setup. What's the vanishing man? This came from homicide detective Fred Hutton, who had silently been listening all this time. It's a story from way back, Harry said. In 1950, the Society of American Magicians and the International Brotherhood of Magicians held a joint conference at a big hotel. I think it was in Boston. Abe shook his head. Cleveland, I'm sure of it, he said. Or maybe Philadelphia. Whatever it was, Harry continued, one of the attendees performed a trick for a bunch of other magicians in his hotel room. It's an illusion which has come to be known as the vanishing man. What's the trick? Randolph said. Simplicity itself. Harry said. The audience assembled in the hallway outside his hotel room, and I should add the room was similarly configured to the one in your case. Only one way in, no adjoining doors, no open windows, a classic locked room. Classic, Abe agreed. Our magician went into the room with instructions to the assembled that they had 30 minutes to find where he was hiding. At the end of that 30 minutes, they would vacate the room, and he would reappear. And did he? Randolph asked. He did, just as promised, Harry said with a grin. They searched the room for 30 minutes, and he was nowhere to be found. No secret panels under the vanity, no trap doors in the closet, no tunnels discovered under the bed. At the end of 30 minutes, they left the room, and five minutes later, the door opened, but out he stepped. If that's not a miracle, I don't know what is, Abe said. Of course, not to be outdone. Harry did his own variation on the effect years later. A minor effort, he said modestly. It was really my pal David Williamson's idea. I just put my own spin on it. I was genuinely intrigued. I've never heard about this, I said. I thought I had heard every one of my Uncle Harry's stories, many of them multiple times but this was a new one to me. Oh, it was silly, really, Harry said with a chuckle. It was back at Magic Live a long time ago. I announced to a group that I was going to recreate the vanishing man effect at such and such a time. Very portentous, you know? So we all show up in the hall outside his hotel room at the appointed hour, Abe added. There were a bunch of us. I addressed the group and said I was going to attempt it but that I felt I could probably only pull off the effect for 20 minutes or so, Harry explained. I said they could come in one at a time, and they would each have four minutes to search the room in their attempt to find me. Then I went into the room. We waited five minutes, and then we started the clock, Abe said, picking up the story. The first magician goes in. Four minutes later, he comes out, shaking his head. He's gone, the guy says, disappeared. Then the next one, and the next one, Abe continued. Same reaction every time, complete mystification. By this point, my curiosity is piqued. Finally, it's my turn. 
I go into the room. The curtains are drawn. There's a lamp on by the bed. There's light coming from the bathroom, but the room appears empty. Abe's voice had gotten quieter as he recounted his tale, so the folks at the adjacent table leaned in to hear him. He's not behind the curtains. He's not in the closet. He's not in or under the bed, Abe said, ticking off the locations on his fingers as he listed them. It's not a big room, which left only the bathroom. So I push the door open, and the first thing I see is my reflection in the mirror. And then I pull back the shower curtain, and what do you think I see? Nothing? Carol Hollinger said breathlessly. No! I see Harry! Abe said with an abrupt laugh. He's standing there in the tub big as life. He grins at me, puts a finger to his lips, and says, Tell them you couldn't find me, Harry said in a hoarse whisper. Abe laughed at the memory. So, just like everyone else who'd come through the room, I go back out into the hallway and announce that I can't find him. And as the next guy goes in to try his luck, I exchange a look with the first magician. We give each other the slightest of winks. We're in the club. They all did a great job, Harry said between laughs. He was close to crying from the memory. But the beauty part, Abe said, catching his breath, the beauty part was that at the end of 20 minutes, Harry came out of the room. He told the group he was exhausted. He couldn't do it anymore. But there were still four or five guys who never got to go into the room. Not only were they disappointed, but they just heard seven or eight guys tell them that Harry Marks had vanished in that hotel room. And they bought it. They believed he'd pulled off the vanishing man. When did you set them straight? I asked. I couldn't believe I had never heard this story from Harry before. A year from never, Abe said as he uttered another barking laugh. What? Harry shook his head, still laughing. No, we never told them. The ones who went into the room kept the faith. It was a thing of beauty. I give credit to David Williamson for the idea, of course, but we pulled it off gorgeously. Talk about the long con, Glenn Randolph said, a distinct tone of admiration in his voice. Indeed, I agreed. The vanishing man redux. Magicians are still talking about it. Abe said as he held up his glass and toasted Harry. That's all well and good, Mark Kelly said quickly, but you haven't explained how the first guy did the trick and how it connects with the dresser case. Ah, yes, Harry said, catching his breath. I'm afraid we have gone off on a bit of a tangent. That's what we do, Abe mumbled as he took a long sip. Otherwise, what's the point? This is just a theory, of course, Harry continued. But I believe the method used to get out of the hotel room in The Vanishing Man may have been similar to the one employed to get into the room in your case. Here's how our fellow did it back in the day. He had discovered, entirely by chance, that the medicine cabinet in his room had not been attached, but merely set into a recess in the wall. He pulled it out, revealing a crawl space of some kind, probably a maintenance shaft for ventilation but certainly large enough to hide in, if only for 30 minutes or so, which is what he proceeded to do. He set up the situation with the group in the hallway, 
entered the room and disappeared behind the medicine cabinet, pulling it back into position from inside the ventilation shaft. And thus, the vanishing man effect was born. Wait, Mark Kelly said as he held up a hand. Are you saying the thief or thieves were hiding in the wall of the hotel room? Harry shook his head. By no means, he said quickly. And this is, of course, just a theory. First, let me ask you this. Does anyone know if the Dreschers received their room key before or after Denise Drescher pulled the diamond necklace out of her purse? As I recall, Glenn Randolph offered, Denise Drescher took the necklace out of her purse early in the check-in process. Excellent, Harry said. I think seeing that valuable piece of jewelry triggered a plan that may have been in the offing for quite some time. Our thief was just waiting for the right target. When they spotted the necklace, they decided they had found what they'd been waiting for. The first step was to ensure the dresses were placed in one specific room in the hotel, which had been fitted out for this eventuality. That narrows the suspects down to the two desk clerks, Randolph said. Josh White or Nicole Swanson. The thief would likely have worked at the hotel for a while, Harry continued. That would be Josh White, Randolph said. He'd been with the hotel for years. Or, alternately, someone with a close friend in the hotel's maintenance department, Harry added. I'm not sure how Nicole Johnson was hired, but I can find that out, Randolph said quickly. He was clearly interested as to where Harry's tale was headed. Somehow, the thief came to learn that the medicine cabinet in each room was positioned back-to-back with the cabinet in the adjacent room. So, perhaps with the help of maintenance, they set up the cabinets in two specific rooms for easy removal, Harry continued. He began to demonstrate his theory using the salt-and-pepper shakers on the table. For example, our guests are maneuvered into one of these special rooms. Let's call it 1617. The cabinet in room 1615 has been outfitted to be easily pulled from the wall. This reveals the back of the adjacent cabinet. When the time comes, they simply push this cabinet into the bathroom of 1617, grabbing it before it falls and lowering it so that it rests on the top of the sink. And then they climb through the hole, Mark Kelly said. Glenn Randolph nodded along with him. Exactly, Harry said. He turned to Carol Hollinger. You said two odd things which led me in this direction. The first was that toothpaste had been sprayed out of the tube. Yes, she said. It was odd. Why would someone do that? They did it unintentionally. When they lowered the heavy cabinet onto the counter, part of it landed on an open tube of toothpaste, ejecting the contents. Of course, the thief was behind the cabinet at this point and didn't notice. You also said the meager contents of the medicine cabinet were jumbled up, as if they had been ransacked like the rest of the room? Yes, which was weird, because there were only a couple toiletries in the cabinet. Well, just like those cereal boxes that warn contents may have shifted, so too did the contents of that cabinet become jumbled up during the entrance and exit of our thief. 
The process of removing and then replacing the cabinet was enough to rearrange its contents topsy-turvy. So, in order to make this work, they needed control of which room a victim was assigned, Randolph said slowly. And they also had to be assured the adjacent room was unoccupied, Harry added, which points us heavily toward a clerk at the front desk. If my theory is correct, I wouldn't be surprised to learn they had set up this configuration in more than one pair of rooms throughout the hotel to give them options. And of course, if successful, they wouldn't want to do the same trick twice in the same set of rooms. This should certainly be an easy thing to check out, Randolph said as he leaned back. Yes, I would imagine that the wall around the cabinet in the adjoining room would show some signs of tampering. Harry agreed. Of course, if there is molding around the victim's cabinet, you'd be unlikely to detect any traces of the scheme. Well, this is certainly the most reasonable idea I've heard so far, Randolph said. I know you magicians don't generally like to reveal how your tricks are done. Thanks for making an exception on this occasion. Always happy to assist the four horsemen of criminal apprehension, Harry said. And speaking of apprehension, I think maybe the department could return the favor by buying these gentlemen another round, Carol Hollinger suggested. Happy to do it, Glenn Randolph said with a grin, as long as you approve the expense report. Consider it approved. Thanks, folks, Harry said. And Eli, as soon as you're done pouring the drinks, I'll show you what you're doing wrong with that iPhone card trick. I have a couple of notes as well, Abe added. And so, after a quick trip to the bar, I returned to my customary position, learning at the feet of the masters, while the four horsemen of criminal apprehension returned to their drinks and their stories. Two days later, I received a short but enthusiastic phone call from Detective Randolph. Tell Harry his theory checked out, he said. The medicine cabinet had been altered so it could be removed from the adjacent room. When we confronted Josh White, he immediately turned on his pal in maintenance. Apparently, they had hatched this plan several months ago and, like Harry suggested, were just waiting for the right opportunity. A smart pair, I said. Yes, Randolph agreed, although I doubt they knew they were reimagining a magic trick from 70-odd years ago. Also, as Harry predicted, they had made adjustments to three different sets of adjacent rooms in the hotel to increase their chances a room would be available on a moment's notice. I told him I'd pass the good news along to Harry. But before he let me go, Randolph then spent several minutes offering up his own theories on how I had pulled off the trick with the iPhone and the deck of cards. It was clear that, as Harry had suggested, he wouldn't be able to fully enjoy the trick until he knew how it was done. Surprisingly, one of his ideas was actually pretty close to how I did it. Of course, I'd never give him the satisfaction of admitting that. Well, we're going to hear more about the origins of The Vanishing Man when we chat with Dave Williamson. And like a couple stories in The Self-Working Trick, uh, it occurred to me, and it's also in the 
the middle grade book, The Curious Mysteries of Eli Marks, the crime that is covered in this story is something that is solved right there in the bar without Eli and Uncle Harry leaving. Sort of like if you remember Nero Wolf, he never left his apartment and he would just solve everything right then and there. And that's kind of what those guys are doing in that story. That, you know, if we could get more people to do that, and I think the world is going in that direction. Uh, solving uh, mysteries from home? Well, solving solving everything from home. Just, folks, just stay home. We're trying to save the planet. And I think corporate America is leaning in that direction. I'm uh, certainly staying home. I'm home right now, and I have no intention of leaving. It's a good place to be home, or should be a good place to be. But listen, as you mentioned earlier, the Vanishing Man is a story you heard originally from our guest today, David Williamson. Yeah, I, you know, I really can't remember. I heard it somewhere. I'm not sure I heard it directly from him or where I heard it, but it it was his story. And I'm thrilled that David had time to tell us that story and a lot of other stories about conventions I hadn't heard. But we kicked off the interview with, I don't know, it just felt like a, a friendly question to an old pal. We're thrilled to have you back. You doing well? Yeah, I just got back from Magi Fest. It was a blast. I know. I've seen your picture all over Facebook. And why didn't you come? Where were you? Well, here's the thing. Snowstorm? Uh, no, no. I, I could have gotten there. I I'm trying to limit the. I was told by Mike Caveney that I see too much magic. <laughs> I said, well, no. Look who's talking. I know. Yeah. That I see more than I need to for my purposes. And I went to a I big see. writer's conference last summer and I thought, well, eh, I don't need I don't need to. But I'm I'm hoping to go next January and I'm hoping to bring my friend Jim with me because he's never been to Magi Fest. I would oh. love to go. You know I would. It's kind of overwhelming. I mean, there were a thousand people this yeah. year and it's it's mostly guys with uh Facial hair and tattoos, uh, doing card tricks for you know three days straight. That's basically yeah. Well, would... there's there, there's other pleasures as well, though. Yeah. There, there are there are, but the seeing of old friends awesome. and all that. My impression. No, I I've been going to Magi Fest since I was twelve, so I have so many old friends there. All right, we're gonna dive right in because that's a, let's the, do it. The fact that, about... that you just got back from a enough magic about convention. magic conventions. Let's talk about magic conventions. <laughs> exactly. You <laughs> just got back from one. So this is a perfect time. You know, the last time we chatted, you told us about your first experience at a magic convention where your mother dropped you off at Abbott's. Yeah. You pitched a tent. You got rained out and you officially entered the world of magic. For listeners, you can go back to episode 223 and hear that whole story. Have you camped out at a convention since then? Uh, let's see. Um, I may have. Uh, I don't know. I, I've slept in hallways and, you know, in foyers and cars and things like that at magic conventions over the years. Absolutely. I don't know if I've camped, slept under a canvas tent uh, since then. My wife actually gave me the weekend pass. She goes, I can see it in your eyes. You don't want to be sitting here. You want to be an hour away with your little shuffling cards. I've been away all month uh, in uh, England doing circus 1903 and i've been home for just a week and she was like go get away go you're bothering uh, me. okay i i have to sidebar to circus 1903 because i this is the first i've heard of it but already i am excited beyond belief what oh, is it? my goodness circus 1903 is a big show about a circus coming to town in the year 1903 and i'm the ringmaster in that show we started in 2015 in australia at the sydney opera house we toured Australia. We toured the U.S. Uh, we sat down in Vegas for six months at the Paris Hotel. And now we every year we go to London. And the first three years over the holiday season, uh, we're at the Royal Festival Hall right there at South Bank. And uh, this year we were at the Apollo Hammersmith 
big venue for 3500 we played chicago we played the uh, oriental theater dang it how come i hear about this stuff after i don't know it's a beautiful show and uh, the elephants are puppets they're like the people who made warhorse puppets made our puppets and the, the big elephant is a three-man puppet and the baby elephant and we have incredible circus acts all in period costume and orchestration and sets it's gorgeous it's a it's a romantic uh, love letter to the history of the circus basically i want to see this in the worst way well, go to circus1903.com and see the pictures and learn a bit, little bit about it and search it on Google, uh, YouTube. We did a lot of TV appearances and you kind of get the gist. But it's a fun, uh, big, big, crazy show. And I do magic and comedy and I narrate it and all that kind of thing. I'm going to turn this back over to John. Or this. Yeah. Is <laughs> Sorry about that sidebar. <laughs> That's okay. I'm going to plant a flag right here. We love sidebars. So can you estimate uh, how many magic conventions do you think you've been at? since the Abbott's Well, adventure. not as many as many others. I mean, I, when I was a kid, you know, ever since that first one in Abbott's, I was hooked. And my parents were putting me on buses to St. Louis and uh, South Carolina and Pittsburgh. Uh, and know, these were all, if I can interject, these are all places that had magic conventions. They weren't just putting you on a right, bus. Right, they were just <laughs> randomly putting me on buses. Where's this one going? Get on there, David. Uh, they would write a letter to the organizer. I'm going to put my son on a bus. Could you pick him up at the bus station? And could he stay in your home or look after? You know, it was 70s. And my mom was kind of, you know, very liberal and loose in that way and trusting and would talk to these people on the phone. And and then people from my magic club eventually would travel to magic conventions. And my mother knew them. So they would trust me to be able to drive with the local dentist or the local doctor and his wife to go to a magic and I would be maybe a dealer at their booth or something like that for their part-time magic shop so I did a lot of that uh she couldn't hold me back she couldn't restrain me she knew that either that or I was going to hitchhike to go to these magic conventions around the country I mean I went up to Galleon Ohio uh up north Ohio uh there was a little convention that this Terry Roses was his name I believe at the time and so I stayed at the organizer's house and I had breakfast every morning with uh, Slidini, uh, Del Rey, and um, uh, uh, Zone Zero, who am I thinking of? The Hexaflexa, uh, the uh, Jerry Andrus. Jerry Andrus, Slidini, and, you know, three heroes of mine. And, uh, you know, I'm 15 years old and hanging out with them at the organizer's house. So it was just great. Uh, I grew up. They'd see me at these conventions, these old men, Carol Fox and... Al Goshman and Paul Diamond and you know Jay Marshall. They didn't know me. There's that kid who's like a sucker fish. He's at every convention. He's walking around. And they just kind of knew me as this kid. And they go, go tell Paul Diamond. I, you know, go tell so and so and come here and do that. Carry this box out to my car. They didn't know me. As long as we're talking about that, any great stories? I mean, those are some incredible names. Well, I mean, there's so many stories. I would sneak into the president. Ken Klosterman at Magi Fest every year had the big presidential suite. And I just knew that everybody gathered there after the big shows, all the big important magicians and all of their friends and invited guests. And I just kind of would go with the flow. Like I said, like a little sucker fish on the side of a shark, you know, I just kind of walk in stand in the room and watch these grown men act like third graders and that's when i fell in love you know really with the with the magic because jay marshall would sit there i remember somebody brought him a drink they were sitting in the kid closet i was sitting at the table with goshman and and uh, all these guys and they were you know, telling stories and laughing and telling jokes and none of them were serious men i mean my dad was a farmer and a factory worker and you know, everybody in my life outside of magic were kind of serious people and very concerned about me and, you know, spoken serious tones. 
And here were men who were in their 50s and 60s and 70s, like I said, acting like kindergartners and, you know, telling rumors and whispering jokes to each other and cutting up. And somebody handed Jay Marshall a drink and he said, why, thank you, Dr. Jekyll. I don't mind if I do. And he took a sip, but he went under the table for a second. And he was in his 60s and he came up and his glasses were like this, his teeth, his dentures had fallen down to his chin and his hair, his hair was all, he started going, you know, just acting like Mr. Hyde. It was so, I mean, I was just, I was addicted to this kind of thing. I love it. I told you about the convention in uh, Texas, the TAOM convention, where they brought me up to the room, uh, the, the Midnight Society. I don't, I'm, I'm willing to listen again if you haven't. Well, this, this guy came up and he goes, Midnight Presidential Suite at the whatever Hilton it was in Dallas or something. At the Texas Association of Magicians, I think I was 17 or something. Induction ceremony, the Voodoo Society. And I was like, oh my gosh, I knew all these Merlin societies, all these secret societies within the world. Voodoo Society, I'm being inducted. They may have seen me in the hallway doing tricks. They thought I was worthy or something. I was so excited. So I went up there at midnight. This door opens. I go in and it's a private dining room. It's all candlelit, long table, bunch of old gray-haired men, like the three of us sitting there. And Jay Marshall was at the head of the table. They all had towels on their heads, like like um, turbans. Yeah. And there was candles on the table and two pieces of paper. I think they were bev naps or something with a pen there. And they said, you are to be inducted into the Voodoo Society, the Midnight Voodoo Society, and blah, blah, blah. And, and Jay Marshall was just saying all these things, you know, intoning all these chants and words. And write the name of the Wizard of the East, Wizard of East, Willard on this one, and write the Houdini on the way, whatever it is. And now hold this one in your right hand and swear to the, and this to, to the gods of the secrecy and deception and whatever. And then make, wad them up. Wad them up, one voodoo ball in each hand. Now place both voodoo balls into your right hand, the heart hand. And now squeeze with all your might, both voodoo balls. And I squeeze, and to a one, all 12 guys went, oh, like, you know, <laughs> grabbing their groins. And, and then they all had a big laugh, threw me out, and they go, next. And, you know, Johnny Ace Palmer comes in or some other teenager. <laughs> I walk to the elevator. There's a line of teenagers coming up the, you know, being let in one of the, I was like, ridiculous. I mean, that's what I missed. That that was so much fun. Things like that would happen all the time. Yeah. I uh, I got to go to more magic conventions, I guess. Oh, it's just silliness. And uh, nobody takes it serious. Of course, you have all the serious magic and the serious discussions, but there's the pranks and the, uh, and just the fun, you know. Um, who did you who did you run into? Uh, who what are the other some of the other teenagers that you met there that uh, people listening might go? Well, oh, like at Magi Fest, you know, uh, years uh, years later, I was uh, saw Lance Burton for the first time on stage doing his act, uh, his kind of bird act, the twelve minute kind of award winning FISM act. After he won FISM, he was at some major American convention, could have been an IBM or something like that. I was so impressed with him. I went up. I thought he was much older than me. I thought he was a Channing Pollock character you know and i imagined his voice was something like this you know and i went up to him and i said mr burton and uh i i just have to say and i never do this i just you know i love magic a lot but i've never seen anything like it and I, he had three standing ovations during his act you know they wouldn't they wouldn't sit down and uh i said i just i have to tell you it was the most impressive and wonderful uh magic act i've ever he goes hey dave you remember me we used to throw cards at each other at the Magi Fest when we were 14, run up and down the hallway. You know, I was, like, I was dropped jaw. I go, that's you? 
the skinny kit. We used to run around throwing cards and pranking him. Oh my gosh. That's you know, this. So, so, uh, I, I have the rest of the day. I don't know about the two of you, but I'm willing <laughs> to say the rest of the day. These are great. These no, are that was a good, yeah. Things like that were always happening. And you mentioned Lance Burton. Are there other kind of? You must have seen all kinds of magicians coming up that have gone on to. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I yeah, exactly. Well, I you know, I used to when I was young. I you know. Joe Stevens, who just passed away uh, from Wichita, Kansas, a, a magic dealer, and he uh, had that wonderful uh, Las Vegas magic convention years ago. Uh, when I won the IBM convention gold cups in 19, I don't know, 81 or whenever it was, uh, he invited me out to work the desert seminar the next year. He goes, you come on out and work the seminar. And I think he forgot about that because I took it seriously and I didn't follow up. But a year later, you know, or the next spring, whenever it was, I uh, borrowed money from my grandpa and rented a car. And Marsha and I drove from Ohio to Las Vegas for the first time. And I show up at the Frontier Hotel at the convention hotel. And I go, here I am. He goes, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> I said, you told me I could work here. He goes, son, you got to make some plans. I didn't haven't heard from you for a year. And on the bill was a very young Juan Tamaris and Paul Gertner and Michael Amar and Hibahaba Al from uh, and who else was on? Ascanio was on the bill. And he wow. goes, I guess I can squeeze you in one more. And there's David Williamson from, and people are like, who? I don't know. I told, <laughs> must have told the kid I can't send him home. You know, he <laughs> spent his savings getting here. So he was very kind to me to let me do that. But uh, yeah, that was, you know, and that's when I met Michael Weber for the first time, 21 years old, like me. And, you know, uh, nobody knew who he was, but he was brilliant. And Tim Conover and, you know, just just all the great people I knew back then. And I spent time with Mike Skinner and met Roger Klaus. And the first time I went to L.A. was uh, I was 18 with Michael Amar and I were buddies because uh, I met Michael Amar at a convention up in Galleon, Ohio, the same little convention. I was in the competition. I was 15. He was 18. He won. But he came over and talked to me right away because we liked what we I'd never met him. And he was uh, making he was wearing a vest and short sleeves and making silver dollars vanish at his fingertips. You know, I didn't know anything about a top it and the way he did it. Nobody was doing it like that. So yeah. it was the most magical thing I'd ever seen. So he and Gary Plants were there and then we became fast friends. But I used to go. Michael, uh, his father owned a hotel in Jekyll Isle, Georgia. So we used to go there every summer and work the tables. Uh, and that's when he was. Uh, working on John Kennedy's floating bill. He was preparing it in the room and he said, I'm going to do this at every table. And I go, aren't you afraid they're going to see the thread? He goes, they never see it. First table, this guy's looking at the salt shaker, looking at the bill, looking at the salt shaker, looking at Mike's mouth. You know, he's kind of tracking where the thread, <laughs> Mike didn't see it. And the guy reaches forward and plucks the little piece of wax and he goes, I can barely see this. And he's moving the string around and Mike's like <laughs> a trooper, you know, Connor, give me that. <laughs> That's when I swore off thread at that moment. But anyway, uh, but Mike invited me to go out to the Magic Castle with him. I was only 18. He and Daryl were 21. We stayed in Daryl's horrible, horrible little apartment a block from the castle. And Daryl goes, do you like uh, art? I go, I'm going to be an art major. And he said, good. And they took me to this cinema uh, in on Hollywood Boulevard that plays uh, Caligula and Behind the Green Door 24-7. You know, <laughs> this farm kid from Ohio, I came out like the producer sucking my thumb, you know. <laughs> anyway, that was my first, 
they said, stand here. They took me behind the magic castle beside this kitchen door. Stand here. And they would sneak me into the castle every night that week, you know. You know, it's I'm I'm reminded of Malcolm Gladwell's whole thing about, you know, you need 10,000 hours, which um, I always say it, it doesn't make any sense if you're not doing it right for 10,000 hours. But and he mentions that that Bill Gates says that he's successful because he had such access to computer equipment when he was a teenager. He had unusual access to computers. And it sounds like with your your parents' willingness to let you go more than anyone else your age, most likely, you had an advantage because you were just getting an education I really faster. was. And I think anybody who loves something, go to where people are doing what you want to do. That's basically it. Be around the people who are doing what you want to do. You'll see how they live. You'll see the ups. You'll see the downs, more importantly, of that yeah. lifestyle. But And you'll see, and their passion will rub off. And you'll see that it was inevitable that these people are in magic, just like it was inevitable that I was going to do it too. Nobody could stop me. It was a forward force. I didn't have any choices along the way. There was no branching decisions. That's just the way it was. I was bitten hard, and I'm sure it was reinforced by all these people I met at magic conventions. And I, I entered competitions, and it wasn't about winning. It was about showcasing. So it's like your calling card. Here I am. Here's what I'm interested in. Here's what I do. And after each competition, whether I won or lost, I made fast friends. People come over and want to talk about what they just saw. And uh, so that's the value of the magic convention. I encourage anybody who goes to the convention, put yourself out there. Get, do a comp uh, Go to a competition. I know some of these modern conventions like Magi Fest and Magic Live, they've done away with the competition aspect. Um, and I think it's a shame because people don't have anything to work towards. You know, mm -hmm. if I know that in six months I'm going to be entering this competition at the um, convention, I have a goal. I can put a routine together. I can think about something. I can work towards something. Um, and I think that that's the value of competition. It's just having some sort of showcase. Um, and I think it's missing from some of the modern conventions. Maybe it doesn't have to be a competition format, but some sort of showcase where you can get up and kind of show what you do rather than uh, broadcasting that out, rather than just hitting one up uh, people one at a time. When you have a thousand people in a magic convention, it's it's, you know, it's tougher well you're in front of your peers yeah, it, yeah. and nerve-wracking uh, all at the same time it's nerve-wracking but it's uh, educational and uh, and it has benefits down the line every time and then then there's the flip side of working in magic conventions and like i said joe stevens was uh i think i don't he wasn't the first person to hire me but that was probably the highest profile magic convention i got hired for uh, allowing me to do that Las Vegas convention. That was a really good showcase because I made a lot of contacts from that. And um, every time I've worked a magic convention, they don't pay anything, but that's not why you do it. Yeah, You make contacts, people see you. Uh, the, oh, I want you for my festival. I want you for this TV show that I'm producing. You know, you never know who's in the audience at these things. And it has benefits beyond uh, the meager paycheck that you get that week. Anybody who goes, oh, I don't work magic conventions they don't pay anything you're kind of missing the point people come to magic conventions not just amateur enthusiasts but there are people there who are have things happening you know beyond that and gary Ouellette, uh used to from canada he was a lawyer and a magic enthusiast from canada eventually he became uh, a tv producer and he's the one who was responsible for the world's greatest magic you know for a decade there he produced these high uh end network shows 
that were incredible showcases for magic at the time in the 90s. And he used to see me at Fector's Magic Convention. I would go up there with Bill Malone. See, Bill Malone and I, uh, our goal was to get kicked out of Fector's. What does it take to get kicked out of Fector's? We would plant stink bombs in Roger Klaus's cigarettes. He couldn't get away from it. We went upstairs at 2 a.m. and take a bite out of every donut that they laid out for the guys and came downstairs with chocolate around our mouths and on our chins going, hey, guys, there's donuts upstairs. And when they went up, their bite had been taken out of every one of them. You know, and every time we did something outrageous, Obie O'Brien, who ran the convention, would laugh louder. You guys are welcome anytime. It's like, what does it take to get kicked out? We were just so badly behaved. And I think in a good-hearted way, we wanted to make everybody laugh, but we were kind of awful. But uh, but Gary Ouellette laughed the loudest at our antics. Gary Ouellette was the one who laughed the loudest. And when he did a special about Houdini, the Houdini's hidden secrets, he had uh, the Pendragons doing metamorphosis, and he had all these high-end magicians uh, doing incredible feats from uh, Houdini's repertoire. And then he had me. He goes, I want you to do the needle trick. He called me, the Houdini needle swallowing thing. And I go, I don't do the needle trick. I don't even know how it's done. He goes, it's for network TV. It's at Caesar's Palace and you'll be on NBC and it pays, you know, this much money. I go, Marcia, where's the sewing kid? I got to learn this <laughs> trick, you know. So I had never done the trick before, but it was because of my antics at the magic convention that Gary Ouellette was always laughing the loudest. He just thought I was funny. I go, well, I said, I don't do it. Teller does it. We don't want Teller. Steve Spill. We don't want Steve Gary Kurtz. I named all the guys I knew who did a great job at the needle trick. I'd never tried it. He goes, no, I want you. And I want you doing that trick. He told the producers I was the world's expert on that trick. Oh. Uh, I'd never done it. So I got there and I couldn't get the trick to work. All the rehearsal I did, they would tangle every time I tried to pull them out of my mouth. I finally, just before I went to Las Vegas, I found a method I thought might work. And um, I'm sitting here with the producers with a big wad of needles in my mouth, talking to them. Uh, and they had no idea. I felt like I was the godfather, you know. <laughs> but they apparently had no idea. And they, they go, what, can you, what is the trick? What's the demonstration? And I did, did it for them. And it worked perfectly in that uh, meeting room. And they were floored and flabbergasted by the trick and i go okay it has merit and the second time i did it in my life was on stage at caesar's palace oh for a live audience on that was taped that was the second time i ever did the trick <laughs> successfully have you done it since and then i and then i flew to boston the day of that taping i did it for a corporate show and i've been doing it ever since oh, wow. post covid i don't do it so much because it's kind of gross in the mouth and all that right. You know, you're reminding me of uh, we had Jade on recently and she was talking. Oh, about Jade, the, she's wonderful. About being, you know, five, four and, and the way she approaches people. And she used you as an example of, you know, well, he doesn't have the same issues I have and I don't have the same issues he has. <laughs> and she said um, the, the thing about uh, Dave Williamson is you don't book him, you deploy him. And that's <laughs> an interesting way of. You point him at the audience and, and he's off and running. You no. mentioned uh, you you miss the competitions at conventions. Is there anything else that's changed over the years that you that you're glad has changed or that you wish would come back? I, I remember the dealers show. I, I enjoyed that. The dealers would get up and and be able to demonstrate one thing from their booth uh, during a you know a session. So they'd have everybody to the dealer show is at three o'clock. Everybody go in and each dealer would get up and go. Here's what I'm featuring this week and do one and demonstrate one of the tricks. I thought that what was a terrific a idea. idea. That's a fantastic yeah, idea. Yeah, it, it was a show, but it was also a dealer dem, and everybody got to kind of get to know the dealers. They talk about themselves a little bit and some of the things they offer, and they each had like five minutes, you know. That's really uh, hard. Jim and I, you know, Jim and I, uh, 
with our friend Suzanne ran a show called Sunday Night Magic uh, pre-COVID. Oh. And we haven't brought it back yet. But one of the things we talked about was uh, trying to put together a convention here in the Twin Cities because we haven't had one in a long time. And uh, that idea of letting the dealers get up, because I know that as I'm a non-magician, but I've gone to several conventions because that's how I learn about, you know, like you said, I learn what it's like to be a magician by talking to real magicians. And one of the things I found was the the dealer room could be really intimidating because it was so crowded and yeah. you want to see what they're doing and you can't quite get in there. And it's... there's no way. Yeah. There's no way to, you know, to invest 20 minutes at each booth is almost impossible yeah. because they're so, they're so, uh, you know, they're dealing with people. They're trying to sell to 12 people at the same time. And you're lucky if you see them demonstrate the one thing that, you know, um, but yeah, dealer show is a nice way to uh, let them showcase the, their top items in a relaxed atmosphere where everybody can sit there with their Diet Coke kind of watch, you know. <laughs> I'm all for that. Anyone who's putting on a convention is listening now. Uh, dealer show. We should do that. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good idea. I, I uh, And it does, I have not been to a magic convention in 15 years, probably. And now uh, I I just have to make it a priority. This uh, This sounds just like way more fun than... Uh, then I should be allowed to have, I guess. And, uh, well, it is all the fun. You know, the thing about the Magi Fest that I always loved, it's the sharing. I mean, there was really, uh, there were always tables in the lobby in the foyer. They just put big 10 tops and throw a million chairs out there, not in a back room. They didn't set a separate room for sessioning. It was front and center. It's the first thing you see when you come in. And that's where everybody hangs out in the lobby of the hotel, depending on which hotel it was at but they would just find the biggest open area and just throw tables down and you don't have to do anything else. You don't have to put, you know, maybe have some food, some snacks nearby. So people don't have to go out to a restaurant and leave the hotel. You know, that's what it is. It's about the sharing and the interfacing and as much as you can do to uh, facilitate that makes for a great convention. You know, the banquets, there used to be formal banquets and people would dress up and you have these formal shows. And it was like, you know, the Rotary does that too. And so does the Plumber Supply Convention and so forth. It's not unique to magic. Um, so it feels kind of like, uh, I see all the professional magicians and all the guys who are there for other reasons get antsy during that. You mean like I got to put on a jacket, I have to use a knife and fork and sit to sit through a four course meal and it's extra money. And that's not why I'm here. I want to go out, you know, to a nice dinner and have chicken and, you know, no, no. So that always felt like a, a little old fashioned to me mm -hmm. and not necessarily uh, part of what attracted me to magic conventions. It was a distraction, you know. But there also are, uh, I've talked to a couple of magicians who go to conventions and never even go into the ballroom to see a program. It's all sessioning. Well, that's all the it. Time. Yeah. you got to make sure you your uh, security is before the sessioning somehow because plenty of people just show up and won't pay for registration because they don't go into the dealer's room. They don't go to the lectures. They don't go to the shows. They just want to hang out with their buddies in the lobby because that's where the best part of the convention is. How do you police that? You know, and keep, I mean, I'm going to say this now. Uh, I, because uh, the guys who run the conventions are, aren't running them anymore. But when I was young, we used to go photocopy badges. We used to scam badges. We used to, Pay people, you know, we go find the right kind of yarn to put around the lanyard and all that. And 
and uh, changed names and so I snuck into many magic conventions, many, many, many. I didn't have the money to pay two, three hundred dollars for registrations when I was growing up. So we would just kind of walk in <laughs> and scam our way, borrow, borrow other. Let me have your badge. I need to go in the dealer's room, things like that, you know. So anyone listening has learned two important things. One, <laughs> you can show up at a magic convention and say, I talked yes. to you last year and you said you were going to put me on stage and they will. And yes, two, it's true. really easy to sneak into a magic convention. There you go. You don't have to pay. Uh, just don't get any notoriety because once they recognize you, they know you didn't pay. You know, that's the problem. Can you think of uh, other than yourself, who sounds to me like you have done magic conventions really right over the years? Can you think of other... That. Well, it sounds to me, from my perspective, from where I'm sitting in my <laughs> kitchen, you would be the guy I would want to tag along with at a magic convention. Are there other magicians you can think of who, who really knew how to do a convention right? Well, yeah, like, you know, Mike Caveney, he's 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 the ultimate insider when it comes to magic. He knows everybody. He knows the backstory. He knows the politics. He knows he, he has access to everybody. Uh, he, if you're going to a magic convention, find Mike Caveney and stick next to him. He knows all the interesting little diversions. Come on, we're all going to go up to David Copperfield's room, or we're going to go down to this warehouse down around the corner. This guy has a secret little dealer's booth that he's got some old posters. Or we're going to, I heard about this. We're going to go do that. And uh, we're going to get in a car and drive an hour outside of town tomorrow and go visit this person who nobody's heard of anymore. And he'd forgotten, you know, things like that. So that's my advice. Find Mike Caveney and you know, buy him lunch and dinner and stick to him like glue. All right. That's good advice. <laughs> that's very good. Let's talk about uh, funny experiences at uh, at magic conventions as we warm up to uh, what I think will be a terrific finale to this conversation. Uh, other uh, funny experiences uh, at magic conventions? Not oh, that you haven't gosh. given us a I ton already. There's just so many little ones. I, 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 can't, I can't even, the time I tied a weather balloon to Roger Klaus's coat and he had no idea he was walking around with a three foot balloon above his head everywhere he went. And, uh, <laughs> and the time I, uh, Paul Diamond had one of those, he was the one of the first guys I've seen with one of those rascal scooters, you know, where you make a scooter, yeah. uh, the little scooters of mobility. Now they're very popular with uh, people who have issues, but his was always sitting outside his dealer room and I would just see him. I go, can I borrow your scooter? So now I, it came to the point where he would just see me and he tossed me the keys to his scooter. And I would use, <laughs> I just drive over around the magic convention and crash into people. And there's sessions on the floor of cards and so forth. I just drive right over him. And I became a menace in that scooter. Uh, Carney and I made a video. We used to make videos to show on the main stage, you know, just around the, uh, around the convention because i remember carol fox and ab dixon and duke stern used to have the foxy follies at the abbott's convention where anything that happened during the week they would um they would spoof for the final night show so they would do a spoof of all the you know other acts and if there was any drama or if any mistakes happened it would just be a huge pantomime spoof and that's what the follies were where they would come out and kind of uh recap the convention in a highly comic way and i absolutely love that because they weren't taking themselves seriously they weren't taking the magic seriously and it was like guys we're all here for fun you know uh so i kind of tried to interject that when i would go to conventions and often they like i went to fism and they were having a lot of problems and the organizer came to me and he said can you just make a video make a funny video and kind of document all the problems and you know maybe pop the balloon of tension a little bit. So let everybody know, yes, 
we're all aware of the problems that we're having and with technology, the technology and so forth. So I, I've done that at a few conventions where I'll run around and just make crazy videos. And Tom Mullica, once we were at the Atlanta convention and during my lecture, I said, uh, I'm a little, I'm getting hungry. I don't know what time dinner is. Anybody else hungry? And this kid said, yeah, I'm hungry. I go, what do you want? And he goes, how about some chicken or something like that? I go, really? So I walked out the back of the, uh, through the curtains, the camera, which was, you know, uh, projecting up on the screen above me, followed me through the curtain. And you could see me walking across the street through the parking lot into uh, a um, Popeye's chicken. And I walk up to the counter and I go, hey, you got any? And Mullica steps out from behind the, you know, he's back there with a paper hat and an apron. He goes, what do you want? And I go, uh, I don't know. I'll have, he goes, how about some mafiosa chicken? The bones are already broken. He produces this ball peen hammer and starts smashing pieces of chicken on the counter. And he picks it all up and sticks his hand through the bag and drops it on the floor. Whoops. And he bakes all, and then he hands and pushes me out the door. And what the people didn't know is like five minutes before my lecture, I saw Mullica and I go, go over to Popeye's, get behind the counter and pretend you work there. And I'm going to come over in about a half an hour uh, with a camera crew in the middle of the lecture. He goes, how am I going to do that? And I go, you're Tom Mullica. <laughs> Be Tom Mullica and make it happen. So as I'm walking across the street, I didn't know. I couldn't see him anywhere. I walk in. I don't see him anywhere. But I did see the employees look like they were in the middle of a robbery. They just had these, this looked like they were looking off towards the managers, you know. And then boom, out comes Tom in full regalia. One quarter for one. We don't sell hamburgers. We just got chicken. Whatever. Come on, man. I don't have much time. I'm with the magic convention. You want mafioso chicken? You know, where the bones are already broken? Yeah. That's... I don't know what she likes. All right. Want that to go? Please, if you could just wrap that up. Do you have some very sanitary, sir? What do you want? Napkins? Something yeah. to drink? What do you want to drink? That's right. That's anything. Just anything give me something. Drink? I don't have a lot of time. You don't un seem to understand. Coke? Yeah, Coke is fine. I have no idea what he said to get back there or what happened before or after. It was the most hilarious thing. Great. On my website, I'll tell you another one. On my website is. Um, if you go to davidwilliamson.com and look at my little blog called The Ridiculist, there's a video of Rich Block used to do a magic convention in Washington, D.C., and he had something called Midnight Madness. And he, one year he said, you're doing Midnight Madness. So I go, okay. And I did what I always do. I called John Carney. I said, we're doing Midnight Madness. I said, do that funny character you always do. He goes, what character? I go, you know, you wear that little hat and you talk stupid and you do things. Uh, he didn't have a character. He just had a move that he did with a guy in a hat, you know. But I knew he was the man of a thousand voices. So right before we go on, he goes, uh, should I talk like this or should I talk like this? Maybe? I go, I don't know. You're the man of a thousand voices. Pick one. And then we start the show. And then out comes Mr. Misto in full form and hilarity. So you'll see the birth of Misto, uh, this half improvised, half written crazy Midnight Manda show we did at the Washington, D.C. convention. Mr. Misto Jr. Third, how do you... It's a pleasure. Mr. Misto, please. Have a seat. Mr. Misto, nice to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Dave. It's certainly a pleasure. You know, it's uh, wonderful here. to have somebody like you on the, uh, on the show. Thank you so much for coming out, a busy professional like you. I can't... I, this is an honor for me to have you. You've had such a wonderful career. Yes. Yeah. How'd you get into magic? Well, my father... That's the question everybody asks. Well, yes, my father was in show business. He, he did the side show. He's uh, Mr. Misto uh, Jr. the, the second. second. Yeah. 
he did, uh, besides magic, he did uh, challenge regurgitating. Oh. Any, any object from the any uh, audience. Yes, well, his undoing was a bowling ball and his pride. <laughs> yes. I, I begged him not to do it during the heavy pollen season. Yeah, that's but, the same. You had an unusual but, uh, start in, the, in show business, in the magic. You didn't start on television how or on you, stage. No, I did magic on the radio. <clears throat> I did... <laughs> I did the uh, chalk talk and balloon twisting on the radio. Very annoying, I think. <laughs> that was before squelch control. Yes, we could be further. And you were in the circus? I remember you traveled in the circus. I did? Yes. <laughs> oh, I did, yes. What? I couldn't see the card. No, you... Uh, oh, yes, I, I did a, 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 a lion act, yes. A lion you were act. a lion tamer? No, I blew dry his hair. Yes, I was a lion tamer. What... <laughs> What kind of Ferocious. question is that? Yes. It was unusual. I, I was able to uh, uh, take a lion and a lamb. They became the best of friends. It kept them the friendship insane. between a lion and a lamb. Yes. Is so that's amazing. Yes. Didn't they ever quarrel? quarrel? Sometimes, yes. But then we just hose it down and get another lamb. Everybody was in stitches by the end of it. Uh, and their cameos by Rene Levon. And uh, Chuck Fain and uh, Harry Anderson oh. and uh, who else is in it? Uh, Mike Finney. Uh, it's just a, a crazy, over-the-top uh, midnight shows we used to do at these conventions. You know, I want to see that too. Yeah, you'll love it. And Eric Mead as Eric Mead plays a character who just got back from mystery school, so he's wearing robes. He has a skull on his staff, and you know he's Ben Johnson, the accountant from Oklahoma City, but now he's. His name is Beowulf, you know, and he just got back from Mr. It's all that kind of stuff. It's so, and him interacting with Mr. Misto is like, you've never touched a stratospheres. How do you know what you weirdo? And it's just so funny. David, do you think you have now become the the cranky old magician at the convention? Cranky? The cranky old magician at convention. Well, here's who what kids, I love. Who I kids love come going, up to. I like I think I told you this before. I always wanted, I hung out with 60-year-old men when I was a teenager. 60-year-old men. And they didn't care anymore. They said that what they thought was funny. They didn't care about being inappropriate. Jay Marshall would stand up in the middle of somebody's act and say something hilarious and walk out, you know, and, you know, and Carol Fox and all these guys. And I wanted to be them. I wanted to be this 60-year-old. And now I'm 61 years old. I was just at Magi Fest yelling at the teenagers and, and uh, you know, and it was so much fun. It was like, okay, I'm passing it along. I'm the cranky old uh, guy but hopefully with a lot of love in my heart because i felt the love of goshman and and you know all those guys it's gone full yeah. circle it's the circle of life yeah. it is it is we have to we have to keep the younger ones in check they get full of themselves don't they they do so on this episode <laughs> the audience has heard before our chat they heard the the short story called the vanishing man redux in which eli marx's uncle harry recounts being at i love your books by the way i love oh, your thank books. you Thank you. Well, you're prominent in that story because Uncle Harry recounts the original story of The Vanishing Man and then your version of it, which which he co-ops and does somewhere else. Right. Could you tell us the, the history of that and your version of The Vanishing Man? Well, um, I believe, you know, it was Max Maven who first told me about the original stunt. And am I correct that it was Winston Freer? Was that the name you got or did you... Boy, you're thinking I did more research than I actually did. Oh, I believe it was Winston Freer. 
And okay. it was a, I think it was a Chicago magic convention on the 30th or 40th floor of this hotel. And he announced that he could go into the bathroom and they count the 30 and he, and anybody would come in and he'd be gone. And back then it was all plaster walls, tile floors. No, you know, the window didn't open to a balcony. Uh, there's no drop ceiling. Um, he was gone at a small hotel bathroom. He was gone. And then they would come out and, uh, you know, a minute or two later, he'd reappear soaking wet and say something like, you couldn't see me, but I saw you, that kind of thing. And uh, it was- So just, he was really gone. They would walk he in. Really and he really was gone. I mean, yeah, he was really gone. And um, uh, there was a backstory to it that had something to do with, uh, he figured out how to do it because he's, uh, somebody was in somebody's wife's room when they shouldn't have been, and the husband came back, and they figured out how to hide, and he found his hiding space out of panic. I, that was what uh, Max figures. But uh, he figured out that he could pull the medicine cabinet out, and there was a crawl space behind the uh, wall there. So he And then we'd crawl through that uh, hole in the wall and then pull the medicine cabinet back in. And uh, that's how the original, that was the secret to that. I love that story. And I was uh, at a, Ron McMillan used to run a wonderful convention in London back in the day called the International Magic Convention. He had, uh, st it still exists. His son runs the International Magic Shop in London on Clerkenwell Road. But uh, back in the day, it was in this little place called the Empire Rooms, a little uh, kind of theater space and event space. And I'd had maybe one too many pints of lager uh, a little shandy or something, whatever they were giving me. And I said, I will now recreate the bathroom vanish. And I had Johnny Johnson, JJ, man the door. I said, send them in one at a time. And people started to line up. I go into this bathroom and the first person goes in and 30 seconds later, they came out and said, he's gone. He's really gone. Now the other 20 people online are intrigued by this. The next person goes in and comes out astounded he's really gone now there's 40 people in line the word is spreading right and uh then i would pop out after every three or four you know uh attempts and say you know i'd be kind of wet and i go you couldn't see me but i saw you let's do it again count to 30 come on in and i'd go in and hide and two of one everybody came out announced that i was gone they didn't see me anywhere they looked everywhere and it was good fun and i did that at several conventions over the years Okay. And the secret was... Oh, you want to reveal it, huh? I want oh, you to reveal the secret. Well, it's revealed in the story, so... Okay, it's revealed in... Uh, yeah, because John Lovick, unbeknownst to me, revealed it in Genie Magazine. I didn't want him to, but that's all right. I think that's probably where I read about it. When they when that first person came in, they knocked, they looked around, they don't see me, uh, and then they opened every stall in this uh, lobby-level gents room in the loo. And when they get to the last stall and open it up, they see me... Uh, with my feet on the toilet seat, squatting, hiding with my head down, with a towel over my head and my two <laughs> fingers extended uh, as a toilet paper holder, roll holder in front of me. So I'm ducked down like this with a towel over my head, just trying, you know, to blend in. Uh, and my, I'm squatting, you know, up on the toilet seat. And uh, they giggle. They close the door. I didn't know what would happen. I think I, I just thought it was a dumb prank. That first person came out, and whoever that first person was, I thanked them because they set the tone for everybody else. They came out and said, he's gone. And I never, in all the years I did that, I probably did it four or five conventions. 
never once did I instruct anybody to, I didn't say a word to anybody. I just, they giggle and then they go out and they know what to do automatically. Instant stooge, just because they want to prank the other 40 people in line, yeah. you know? And there's some people who waited, you know, 45 minutes or so. <laughs> and what must they be thinking? And the culmination was at, uh, there was a convention in uh, San Diego that the Buck Twins put on called Magic Con, where they brought all the cardistry kids and all the old guys together and let us, you know, interface with each other. It was a great convention. I did it there. Michael Weber was my gatekeeper. He was letting people in and uh, it was the lobby bathroom of this hotel in San Diego. And uh, the management was like, what's going on here? You can't clog this hallway. And Michael was like, oh, okay, I'm sorry, sorry. Everybody moved to the wall. Well, when they did that, I was peeking out through the door. Uh, uh, there's a little alcove that has the two doors, the men and the ladies. And for about 10 seconds, I was completely out of view. And so was the door to the ladies room. And Weber's like waving me. So I run to the ladies room. And then the next person goes into. So those last 10 people got the real experience. Oh. They had no clue that I had run over to the ladies room during that little misdirection because it was, wasn't planned. It was just an organic moment. So Doug McKenzie, who's a wonderful magician from very influential. He was one of uh, David Blaine's top uh, consultants and so forth. Very smart guy. I mean, he's one of the smartest guys in magic. He was completely fooled. He had no idea how it was done. And you can imagine the conditioning after standing there for 30 minutes, watching everybody else come out and say he's gone. And then he goes in and I'm really gone. He just had no explanation for it. And he told that story for years. And we never let him in on what was happening. <laughs> I hope he doesn't hear the podcast. He, he, I, he might. I think, I think he read the article. I think now he knows what happened. But he had a couple of good years there of a nice mystery living in his head. I just love talking to that man. There's so much stuff that he just says off the cuff that you go, wait, 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 let's, let's dive in there. One of the things that he said that I never saw happen in a convention because I came to Magic quite late and I've only been to half a dozen conventions is this idea of a dealer show. Uh, what a great idea. Let them it get really up there and, and demonstrate the, their key thing because uh, I find the dealer room intimidating and it's hard to squeeze through and see what they're doing and I'm probably not going to buy it. And so uh, uh, I just feel guilty about taking up space, just watching people do that. But uh, so, hey, anybody out there listening who's doing a magic convention, uh, have a dealer show. How about you? What did you walk away with? You know, there's just so much. But the the thing that that I wrote down is I have to get to that 1903 circus thing i i we it, we have to get there i'll drive i don't is it is it in england i'm not sure exactly it comes and goes it comes and goes i've got a link to a trailer for it in the show notes if anyone wants to uh look at it a little more closely it looks like a lot of fun oh my goodness i'm so on fire about that i mean really there's something in almost every episode that we do somebody says something and i go Oh, that's fantastic. This 1903 circus thing is so right up my alley. So right down the center for me, we have got to find a way to catch that. Can I ask a personal question of you? Sure. Are you still a man who has stored in his garage a circus tent? I gave it away. Okay. Yeah, I gave it away to, uh, and it wasn't really a circus tent. It was, it was a huge, huge party tent, but I gave it away to uh, a small theater company in Mankato that was looking for one. And it was, it as you can imagine, took up a chunk of the garage. Uh, yes. And so, <laughs> so I was, uh, 
when this theater company reached out to me, I happened to mention it to my wife. And she said, uh, call them right back. Just call them right now and tell them uh, they can come and get it. Or better yet, you, you'll put it in the truck and drive it to Mankato if need be. Uh, so, yeah, it's gone. Yeah, the always patient Widow Cunningham, as we always used to call her. A couple other things from that conversation, Dave Williamson, having just mentioned our show notes, I do have a link in the show notes to the full Tom Mullica video um, that he mentions. We had a little soundbite from it in there, but you can see the whole thing. And I also found a link to the first appearance on stage of Mr. Misto, uh, which is worth looking at as well. You find both of those things in the show notes, along with lots of other fun things to click on and go look at and hang out in our YouTube page. There's a lot going on. And speaking of a lot going on, next episode, which is going to be uh, number 312, is going to be sort of a weird episode. We're going to be listening to the final and the longest story from The Self-Working Trick, a story called The Self-Working Trick. Ah, that's right. And joining us next time will be several of the guests from this past season talking about the concept of the self-working trick, their favorite self-working trick, their least favorite self-working trick. It'll sort of be like um, a homecoming, but with magicians, I guess. Yeah, it'll be fun. And then we will have maybe a little bonus episode coming up after that, probably. We'll talk about that a little bit more next time. But that's it for this episode. Don't forget to check out those videos in the show notes, the Tom Mullica video, which is really fun, and that first appearance of John Carney as Mr. Misto. And that 1903 circus clip that's in the show notes. I'm going to watch that incessantly until we actually get to go to the 1903 circus together. I'm not holding my breath on that. No, I wouldn't. I I really wouldn't. But it it really should be on our to-do list. In in addition to you and I attending a magic convention together, which we haven't done in, what, 15 years, maybe? I think even longer. So that's that's on the bucket list. You should be in the dealer room. That's what I was going to say before. You should be in the dealer room. Somebody asked me that once. And the problem is, well, there's a couple problems with it. One, uh, I'm too lazy. The other is uh, I don't want to miss everything that's going on. And oh. sitting in the dealer room, that's not going to be any fun. Well, we could trade off. Well, we'll talk I'll about that. There, you sit there. Yeah, we, we, this, folks, you don't need to listen to the, any of this. This is all. I bet you this is edited out. Or it might still be there. Go live your lives and we'll see you next time with the self-working trick. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Subscribe. <laughs> This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. (laughs) 